Welcome, 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 welcome to this week's episode, episode number 69 of The Shape of Tomorrow, where we delve into the evolving landscape of technology and innovation and how it shapes our organizations and strategic direction. I am your host, Michael Iani Polarchio, and today I have a really compelling lineup of topics that touch on the forefront of technological advancements, the challenges of innovation, the evolving landscape of education, and the latest developments in the podcasting world. Oh, there's a little intrigue for all of you listeners. First on our agenda, just sort of building off of that brief intro, I'm going to have a really important discussion on a recent controversy surrounding Air Canada and an AI bot. This situation raises significant questions about liability and artificial intelligence. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking the complexities of this case. Secondly, innovation, as we know, is the lifeblood of progress, but it's often met with significant barriers. And I'm going to talk about something I had an opportunity to talk to a dear, dear friend and colleague about barriers to innovation. I jotted it down and I thought, you know what? This will be my second segment to explore what these obstacles are and unpack a little bit of that here on the podcast. The digital age demands new literacy skills. This will be our third segment as I look at how education systems worldwide are really at a pivotal juncture. We're going to discuss the urgent need for educational reform to equip the next generation of young people with the skills necessary to succeed in an increasingly digital world. Then I'll take a closer look at a groundbreaking development in smartphone technology, something that's coming. And as a little teaser, just imagine a world where your smartphone operates without the need for any applications. All that and much, much more coming on today's episode. Thanks for joining. Buckle up, everybody, because as always, here we go. Well, it's a cold one this morning. It's minus one here out uh, where I live. I'm recording to you all. From my home studio this fine Friday morning, February the 23rd, 69th episode here of The Shape of Tomorrow. We're almost at 70. This is, uh, I might have to plan something special for the 100th episode. Maybe we'll do some kind of uh, listener engagement contest type thing uh, to mark uh, 100 episodes. Today, as you heard at the top of uh, the show, I've got all kinds of different things in my run sheet that I want to talk about. The first one I want to talk about uh, as it relates to artificial intelligence, but it's related to a news story. Um, And being up here in Canada, for those of you that are uh, listeners from around the world, uh, this story has to do with our major national airline, Air Canada. Uh, the story was in Canadian news uh, a number of days ago, and it spread really quickly. It is in all kinds of uh, articles. I've seen it um, posted on LinkedIn. I've seen it in the Washington Post. I've seen it in Forbes. And 
What this is about um, is Air Canada's use of a chatbot. Uh, so an AI, generative AI chatbot. So think of the integration of ChatGPT type technology into the Air Canada website. And what the story is, is in a nutshell, they uh, had to go to court. So there was a gentleman who... Um, was booking a flight and wanted to know, um, with the death of a family member, um, the, the passenger in question used the Air Canada chatbot on their website to get some information uh, regarding whether um, or how or what the policy was for the passenger to apply for a bereavement fare. Um, so some airlines uh, will give you uh, special fares uh, in the event of the death of a loved one. Um, they have various rules around that. Um, I know just from past experience, you know, you've got to be able to produce a death certificate. Uh, it has to be a certain type of relation. So this individual went on to the Air Canada website and interacted with its generative AI chatbot in order to get some information. Now, the chatbot provided information to the passenger. Um, this gentleman was um, smart enough to take a screenshot. So he had a record um, of the correspondence. And what the, uh, the chatbot said was, and I'm going to just take this from one of the articles, quote, Air Canada offers reduced bereavement fares if you need to travel because of an imminent death or a death in your immediate family. If you need to travel immediately or have already traveled and would like to submit your ticket for a reduced bereavement rate, kindly do so within 90 days of the date your ticket was issued by completing our ticket refund application form. Now this fact is incorrect. This is not the policy that Air Canada um, has. Um, and we're not going to talk about what the policy is. Basically, the policy um, from Air Canada's perspective is you got to talk to them before you buy your ticket. Um, so this case went to court because Air Canada was refusing to um, issue this person uh, a refund. So it went to court. Uh, Air Canada attempted to use um, a couple of lines of argument. One was that um, the chatbot also provided a link to uh, a location on the Air Canada site where the gentleman could have gone and gotten additional information. Uh, they also tried a line of argument in the court that um, the chatbot was a separate legal entity. Uh, um, and, and that they were not responsible for that. Uh, the gentleman won uh, the case. So the judge rejected the line of argument that uh, just because a link had been provided, um, there was no expectation that someone would have to go and dig for additional information on the Air Canada site to validate that since the chatbot was a part of their website. 
And the second part in and around sort of arguing that the chatbot was its own sort of legal entity, that Air Canada wasn't necessarily responsible for it, also uh, was rejected. The judge said no, um, that the, again, the chatbot was something that was integrated directly into um, the Air Canada site. It'll, it, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take again from this particular article, quote, this is uh, from Forbes, while a chatbot has an interactive component, it is still just a part of Air Canada's website. It should be obvious to Air Canada that it is responsible for all the information on its website. It makes no difference whether the information comes from a static page or a chatbot. Uh, so this is really interesting. I thought it was important to talk about for two reasons, maybe three reasons. The first reason is um, it's an interesting Canadian story and, and we're seeing some precedent being set in the courts. Two, it points to um, you in your organizations, if you are uh, working with artificial intelligence, if you're working with generative AI and its integration into um, uh, your business, which I think is an important thing to be exploring for organizations, you need to really understand the potential liability. And uh, thirdly, I thought it was interesting to talk about because we are working with clients. I'm working with clients. Uh, we've got members of our data science and data engineering team that are working with clients to make this kind of functionality happen. And so it gave me pause and, you know, my advice to the listening community is uh, proceed slowly, uh, do a lot of testing and experimentation, and ensure that you are working with a partner that can do two things. Number one, you want to be able to use a framework, um, the framework itself, the acronym is RAG, R-A-G, uh, as it relates to artificial intelligence. And R-A-G stands for Retrieval Augmented Generation. And what this is, and this is what, what we do, um, and I'm not here pitching services, I'm just telling you if you were working on this type of thing, make sure that you have um, somebody advising you on this particular architecture. What RAG is, Retrieval Augmented Generation, is really a technique for enhancing the accuracy and the reliability of your generative AI models. And this is done by making sure what it is generating is being done so with facts that are fetched uh, or retrieved, so it's called a Retrieval Augmented Generation, these facts are being retrieved from sources of your choice. You remember we talked about source grounding and how some of the tools like ChatGPT will allow you to, I could upload 10 documents, for instance, and then as I interact with it, um, it pulls from that corpus of knowledge. And that's at an individual level, consumer level. Uh, we've talked in the past about Google having a, a, a product uh, not available yet in Canada, but it's called Notebook LM. And it, too, allows you to upload documents into the, um, the notebook. And then as you interact, it only pulls from that corpus of knowledge. 
so you know that the facts are correct. Again, these facts get pulled into the system, uh, understood by the generative AI, and then the generative AI um, produces responses. Those responses can still have errors depending on how you tune the model. Um, but when you use a, a, a RAG uh, approach, it uh, very much heightens and, and increases the accuracy of your artificial intelligence chatbot. So that's the first thing. The second thing is anyone that you work with or you should be doing this yourself internally is make sure that you're doing a really good and thorough AI risk assessment. Risk assessment of artificial intelligence should really fall under an umbrella risk assessment program that you have at your organization. Uh, whatever that looks like, you ought to be doing some kind of risk assessment, some kind of risk scoring um, and risk monitoring of um, these types of chatbot initiatives that you may be putting in place. These are early days and things are moving fast. And that's why it's so important not to shy away from doing these things. You have to be doing these things. It's important. You've got to experiment now. You've got to try and understand how this can change your business, how it can enhance what you're doing, how it can drive personalization, how it can drive um, higher levels of customer service, how it can increase efficiencies. All very, very important. But it is early days, so you've got to step into it wisely. And this is why this story really ca captivated me. It's Canadian, um, and uh, it's also very much connected to the work that uh, I've, been, I've been discussing with clients, I've been discussing with internal teams. Uh, we're building our own versions of these uh, reg, um, call them proof of concepts internally, because we are, we are learning um, to implement this technology. And, and I find that fascinating. I found it fascinating when our data science team was um, uh, talking about it. I was talking with a colleague about this uh, who heads up that practice area. Um, I'd been reading about this and could just see how important and how game-changing this was. But this case with Air Canada in the courts, you know, it, it, it tweaks my strategy <laughs> part of my mind and my skill set, that there is liability, there is risk, and that needs to be managed, it needs to be understood, it needs to be mitigated. Uh, and so I thought, you know, what a, what a nice little opening thing to start with uh, here uh, on this morning's podcast, um, because it's a uh, it's not, not going to be the last of these types of cases. There were others. Uh, this happened in the automotive industry where the chatbots were behaving in ways that uh, just you know, weren't uh, what those automobile companies expected. Those did not result in, in sort of legal outcomes. Um, but this is a clear, clear case coming out of the courts that if this is not done uh, properly... Uh, organizations could find themselves um, holding the bag. They could find themselves uh, responsible. If you want more information, uh, again, a simple uh, Google of Air Canada with the word chatbot uh, will surface that for you. And um, 
uh, you can read all about it. I said at the top of uh, the podcast as well, it was sort of the last thing I mentioned, and I sort of said the changing uh, things that are changing in the podcasting world, and I sort of uh, was teasing you with that, uh, uh, but I'll slip it in here. I won't save it for the end, uh, and it's really quite a minor thing, but I think it's quite a, a good thing, um, and that's why I wanted to highlight it. If you are listening to this podcast using uh, the Apple uh, podcast app, which, by the way, last week had some kind of bug and did not uh, release um, podcasts, mine and, and many thousands of others, the episode wasn't showing up for people um, for a number of days last week. And I, uh, the shape of tomorrow, got caught in that as well. I, th- I think it, it sort of started popping up for people on the Saturday. Uh, anyway, that put aside. Uh, one of the things that the Apple Podcast app will do now, and if you're listening to this, you can probably just take a look at it if you want, um, there is a transcript available. Um, they are auto-generating a transcript of the podcast. And I think this is great because if there's something that I've said um, and you're listening to this, let's say then you get to the office or you get home um, and you want to, I don't know, um, email some content or put some content somewhere and a little scratch pad for yourself, uh, rather than having to go back and listen or rather than, than, than trying to remember um, you can actually just go to the transcript, scroll through the text, find uh, that segment, and copy and paste or reread um, uh, you know, what uh, I had said uh, in the transcript, uh, in the podcast itself. So nice little addition. Uh, I think it's great. It was something I was hoping for. It doesn't look to me like it's retroactive. I don't know if over time they will go back and do that automatic, automatic transcription, um, but I've seen it uh, in last week's episode. Um, I believe I saw it in the, the week before. I wanted to wait a little bit just to see how exactly it was working. It seems fairly reliable, and um, I thought I'd highlight it for, for those listeners. We've got uh, uh, about 50%, a little more than 50% of our listeners listening to us on uh, uh, the Apple Podcast app. So there's a little benefit for you. Let's take a little break, and I'll be right back with another topic. Innovation, that topic that is so central to our discussions here on The Shape of Tomorrow, and really the lifeblood of organizations. You've heard me say this many times. I believe that organizations that today do not have that ability to drive innovation um, will find themselves uh, really disadvantaged and at the risk of uh, becoming completely irrelevant Uh, with their customers. I've had two sort of conversation or instances in talking about innovation over the last week, Uh, maybe just a little over a week. The first one was with uh, a client uh, in uh, higher education or a prospect uh, within higher education um, uh, that wanted to talk about um, some of the things that they were looking at doing. Uh, They were focusing on some things to potentially change their, their overarching uh, model of delivery. Let's just leave it at that. Anyway, we got into a, an interesting discussion. Uh, he was sort of pushing back on, on this idea of uh, organizations um, missing the boat on uh, innovation. Uh, and, he, and he said something along the lines of, 
uh, he hated, uh, quote unquote, hated when people used examples uh, like Blockbuster and Kodak. And so I said, you know, well, what, what do you mean? Like, unpack that for me. Um, and uh, his beef was that, uh, you know, he had so often heard that organizations like uh, a Blockbuster or like a, uh, a Kodak, and you could pick any others, I guess, they're often used as, a, as a, a, an example or a case study of what happens if you don't keep up with technology and if you don't kind of keep up with uh, innovations. And uh, his point was that uh, he felt that wasn't true. Uh, and he said, you know, he gave some, some good examples. He said Kodak didn't actually miss uh, or, or, or didn't um, participate in digital photography. Uh, he said that he felt that was a, a misnomer and, a, and misinformation. His point was, and, and I'm, I didn't actually fact check this, but I think it's fairly true, was that Kodak actually invented the first digital camera. Uh, he went on to talk about uh, the internet and when the internet came on and it, it really disrupted many industries, that in fact Kodak didn't um, miss that or understand its potential. Uh, and that <clears throat> at one point in Kodak's history, they actually went out and bought a, a, a photo sharing, online photo sharing site to give them that capability. And that was many, many years, 10 plus years before Instagram uh, was even a concept and that they had uh, stepped into that. Um, and then he said something interesting. I was sort of listening um, and reflecting. Um, I kind of wanted to say something about the innovator's dilemma, but he then said to me that it wasn't that Kodak wasn't looking at innovation, wasn't understanding how technology was exhibiting forces on their business. It was that they had already a highly profitable business, which was physical film. The selling of physical film, the development of that film, all those things that, that go into developing film, the chemicals that were needed, the machines that were needed, and that's where I nodded and I said, exactly. Um, and that's the innovator's dilemma. That is how organizations can become disrupted. Okay, so BlackBerry, you know, they, they were in denial to a certain point um, with regards to what was happening when the iPhone emerged. But they then saw the writing on the wall and they tried many things. The problem? They already had a business, they already had devices and a service that their existing customers liked and didn't want touch screens without keyboards. And this is exactly what this, um, this fellow was highlighting with Kodak, was that <laughs> their core business was what their customers were buying and wanted. They didn't want lower resolution digital photography. Remember, the innovator's dilemma is caused by a service or a product that enters the market, which actually isn't as good as what is currently in place. That is where the trap uh, is, because 
people look at it and they dismiss it. So either organizations dismiss it and say, ah, this is not a threat. These are lousy looking photos. Who would ever want this blurry, small photo when you could get these, these physical prints that look beautiful, that you can print in various sizes, and they dismiss it. Or the consumers themselves dismiss um, that uh, type of innovation. And we've talked about this before uh, often, uh, the innovator's dilemma. So it's one part of it. And the reason I wanted to uh, talk about it was um, I then had a follow-on conversation with someone completely different, uh, a former colleague, who wanted to talk about barriers to innovation. And so that sort of got me thinking, um, I sort of half-joked while I was chatting with her and said, we should have recorded this as a podcast. Um, and if she's listening, she's probably he- hearing that now. Um, what we talked about, you know, the question that was posed to me was, uh, you know, what are the barriers uh, to organizations? Or for me, uh, having been able to implement uh, an innovation program uh, inside uh, an organization. And the innovator's dilemma is one of those barriers. And there are things that can be done to uh, navigate those barriers. There are, though, other barriers that um, can impact the ability for organizations to be able to innovate. Uh, And those barriers, when I was reflecting on them in this uh, particular conversation, there's a few of them. One is resistance to change. So the innovator's dilemma is a part of this resistance to change. Uh, Your internal uh, stakeholders can resist change because... They just sort of say, this isn't the product that we deliver. This is not um, our core business. And your customers can resist that change. So there's sort of an external. But you can also have resistance to change even when, when it's not a situation of the innovator's dilemma, where people just are skeptical. And you've got to be able to work through the challenges of overcoming skepticism and resistance amongst your peers or the community or whatever, whoever your stakeholder groups are. As well, your organization can only absorb so much change. So as you're trying to lay the foundations for an innovation program, you've got to keep your eye on, on managing change and not overloading individuals or departments or the organization as a whole with change. This leads me to the second sort of obstacle or barrier to um, innovation and and creating an innovation program inside an organization or an innovation structure or innovation culture. And that's resource constraints. Inside organizations, there are not an infinite number of resources. So you have to understand what your resource constraints are. Those constraints could be you don't have enough people. The constraint could be you don't have enough people with a certain type of skill. Right? There, might need, there might be a shortage of skills. 
resource constraint can most certainly be financial constraints. The greater the financial constraint, the harder it can be to either invest in innovation programs um, or sometimes what happens is you, you do have that ability to generate a lot of that, that upfront innovation and then you don't have the, the resources to invest to actually make it happen, to take it from that idea stage and start to execute. That's a, that's a resource constraint. The other constraint that I think is often overlooked is time. This kind of couples with the, the change resistance to change piece and managing change. You have to understand if time is a resource constraint in your organization, that people don't have the time to work on these things, that the organization doesn't have the time. Maybe your leadership group doesn't have the time to focus and make innovation uh, a strategic priority. And these three things couple together, resource constraints, resistance to change, natural resistance to change, and then the innovator's dilemma itself are three very real components um, uh, or elements, phenomena, that can act as barriers to innovation in your organization. And it's tricky to navigate. You've got to have really experienced innovation leadership to be able to drive uh, an innovation program. You've got to be able to look at it strategically. You've got to be able to map it out. Um, all the things that we talk about week after week here are all super important. But being able to navigate the barriers, to identify the barriers, and come up with strategies to overcome those barriers is really important. Otherwise, your innovation initiatives will, will, will sputter. Uh, they'll lose steam. And, uh, and they won't go anywhere. So my thanks to both those individuals um, uh, who I think are probably listening to this week's podcast. Thank you for um, the conversation. It's always nice to have these conversations. It is an ongoing conversation in my mind. Innovation is not a one-time event. Um, and if it's not a one-time event, it means you don't talk about it and think about it only one time. You have to do that repeatedly and re-engage with it over and over again. So thanks for giving me a, a few minutes this morning to talk about innovation and barriers to innovation. Let's talk about artificial intelligence and the future sort of paradigm for how we may interact with this. Um, you remember that uh, in January I had an episode where I talked about innovations that were coming out of the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, CES. And I talked about a company called Rabbit uh, that uh, created a product called the R1. And this is a companion hardware device that interfaces with your phone, allows you to interact uh, with your voice, um, the power of generative AI to understand what you're asking and then provide responses based on things it was retrieving from your phone across a series of apps. And I talked about how that um, was the tip of the iceberg, starting to show us uh, where artificial intelligence may start to emerge uh, in our, our, our present-day technology, the smartphone. 
Uh, and today I want to talk about an article that uh, came across my sort of news feed um, as I was doing some early morning research. The title was A Smartphone Without Apps, This AI Assistant Aims to Replace Them All. And I figured, okay, mm, this is probably just someone creating another version of, of the rabbit, but just a software version, some app that you will launch on your phone. But turned out not to be, and I thought it was quite interesting. It's an article actually about Deutsche Telekom, a large uh, global telecommunications company. Uh, and they are uh, preparing for a, a large um, conference that happens every, every year. It's called Mobile World Congress, MWC. I've had the pleasure of actually attending that in the past, in a past life. Um, anyway, they are introducing um, with T-Mobile, which is a, a, a partner, or actually I think they're, they're, they may actually be a stakeholder. They may actually have a, a, a stake um, um, financial stake in, in Deutsche Telekom. Regardless, um, they are going to unveil an AI phone, so an actual phone that is driven by artificial intelligence and uses an AI assistant to perform tasks on your phone, bypassing the need for applications. And I thought it would be an interesting thing for me just to throw in here as part of this segment because it points to a post-app world. Now, this is not something that will emerge this year. It's not something that's going to disrupt the iPhone, not even in the next couple of years. Apps have really emerged as the dominant way we interact with uh, organizations, the way we interact with content that is on the internet, uh, and these apps live on our smartphones. Again, whether it's an Android phone or whether it's an iPhone. What this device that will be revealed at um, MWC uh, is pointing to is the potential next generation. Uh, This phone's generative AI interface is going to be powered by Brain.ai, which is an operating system. And what this does is it allows it to really take over the function of a wide range of apps. In a sense, you speak to the phone. I'm presuming you could probably type your your request in as well. Um, And you make a request and the phone, rather than having to go through a bunch of apps and it is generating an interface for you on the fly. It is generating results for you on the fly. There's a great video on the brain.ai Um, uh, website that showcases the operating system itself. And the example they use is that the person simply says, I want to make chili for dinner tonight. So the AI um, produces a list of all the ingredients that will be required based on a recipe that it generated. So again, it's not pulling a recipe from, you know, recipe.com or... um, you know, whatever site uh, we might normally go to recipes, it's generated a recipe, similar to what ChatGPT will do for you if you ask for a recipe for chili. It then says these are all the ingredients you will need, and here are all the locations you can get those ingredients delivered to you within two hours. So you see now it's out um, either accessing applications or accessing the web, the broad web, and finding that information and bringing it forward into the interface. And then it also has a section that um, will lead you through the cooking of your chili. 
uh, and it, it's adaptable. And if you've got a question around, I'm not really sure what you mean by saute the onions, and it can surface that for you. And to me, this points to a very, very interesting evolution of the smartphone. You know, we talk about smartphones becoming disrupted. We talk about um, things like the Apple Vision Pro spatial computing device, which uh, has the potential to, to disrupt um, the smartphone market. Well, artificial intelligence will either be bundled in with that type of device, or we will see AI increasingly becoming um, embedded in our smartphones, and we will eventually move from an app-centric paradigm. Think of all the apps on your phone. There may come a day where you aren't tapping the podcast app uh, and listening to this podcast. You may be getting in your vehicle and you might be saying, uh, take me to work and the AI automatically uh, generates a, a map and directions and starts to sort of call that out. And because you're on your way to work and it knows your preferences, it might say, you know, would you like to listen to, there's some interesting topics on um, artificial intelligence. And who knows, maybe it takes one segment from my podcast and two segments from a different podcast and bundles that together and brings that forward to you. That's a dynamic, highly personalized experience uh, for you as the user. So that's pretty, it's pretty cool and it's pretty exciting. And I thought I'd make it uh, a part of this final segment. The last thing I want to talk about is another article. You can tell I've been doing a lot of reading uh, and this article here, I actually wrote a very small uh, piece on the Shape of Tomorrow newsletter, um, which has had thousands of people uh, read. Um, uh, I published two articles this week, and between the two of them, I've got over a thousand people um, that uh, have read those articles, which is great. I'm so uh, appreciative that that channel um, of content is reaching people. The article I read, uh, the title was Digital Literacy Expert Explains Differences Between Reading in Print and Online. And what I liked about this is it really points to what are we doing in school? We build literacy, literacy skills. Think about when you were in school or if you're an educator, because I know we have a large educator market listening to this uh, podcast. Think about what we do in schools to build literacy, to teach literacy to, to students. This article was highlighting uh, a really interesting study, uh, research study that had um, uh, been done. Uh, it's an associate professor in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Delaware. And it was looking at a group of eighth graders. And the research was really trying to understand what are the differences what are we seeing in terms of the differences around comprehension between reading online and reading in print? Now, before your mind kind of goes to, oh, I bet they read much better when they were reading in print um, than they were digital because of whatever reasons. I'm sure your mind went there. That's where my mind went. I thought, oh, this is probably where this is going. But that's not what the purpose of this study was and it's not what they found. Let me tell you what they did find. They found that 
the online content was not just the written text. It, it contained audio and video and different types of visuals. But what they found was because our young people in the way we build literacy skills focus so much on the written word that when they were consuming content that was digital or online, there was actually no difference in the sense of what they took away from the printed page is what they took away from the, the digital, except they missed a lot of details that were available in the online version because the kids were so focused on the written word. It's what they have learned and what's been built into literacy. There's a, really, there's a couple of quotes here that I'm going to give from, from the article itself. This actually comes from um, uh, Rachel Karkamer Klein, who is the associate professor, and she says, The details of the story and the fun and really cool stuff that came out in the narrative text were told through sounds and pictures in the online. And they engaged with it, the students, but because they were focusing on the words that were presented in the digital text, they missed a lot of the details. And the crux of this article is that our literacy skills that we are building for students needs to change. We have to start to build literacy skills that, are, that really take into consideration what, what she calls multimodality, the use of multiple modes has to be something we start to build. And what I found really intriguing about this, this research was, you know, with all the time that I spent in my, my previous uh, role for the last eight plus years in an educational institution, and we talk about the importance of building 21st century skills for students. And so often that's focused on oh, you know, what software are they learning? Or are they learning to code? Or do they know how to use, you know, a 3D printer? And those, those are all important things. But this points to a fundamental 21st century skill in the area of literacy. It's, 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 it's evolving. We see a new dynamic that's emerging and so important that educational institutions and educators begin understanding this and the importance. Otherwise, we're going to have generations of, of students as they move through their education and they eventually move to post-secondary and they eventually move out into the work world who will not have that literacy, those skills to take information, to take meaning, to understand content from sources that are not just the traditional printed page. Fascinating study, fascinating study. If you'd like uh, to see more on that, you can Google uh, the title of that. You can also go to Substack uh, and see my newsletter. I'll actually link my newsletter in uh, the description uh, of this week's podcast for those of you who might want to uh, jump to it. And, and I've written a little piece on this as well. And what 
educators and educational institutions can be doing to start to build this in. This is the stuff that's a little harder in my mind. It's really easy to say, hey, let's teach the kids uh, how to use Illustrator so they can design something and then 3D print it. That is easy. This is getting to something that is really, it's a paradigm shift in, in learning. It's a paradigm shift in uh, a change in behavior uh, and skill uh, that will be needed. So that's where we'll end off the final segment. I'll be right back and we'll conclude this week's episode. As we wrap up today's episode of Shape of Tomorrow, we've really stepped through some important aspects of innovation and challenges. You know, it's been a real landscape of challenges and innovations from the legal and ethical implications of artificial intelligence and customer service to the barriers that can stifle innovation the pressing need, as you just heard in the final segment, for education to really start equipping our future generations with new literacy skills and fascinating developments of artificial intelligence like the replacing of the app paradigm on our smartphones. Each topic that I've covered today really underscores the importance of strategic thinking, adaptability, and a forward-looking approach in navigating the complexities of our modern world. And you're going to make that happen. The listeners of Shape of Tomorrow, you're here. Your curiosity brings you here because you're going to make that happen. As leaders, innovators, and thinkers, it's our responsibility to harness these insights and shape a future that really reflects our highest aspirations and values. And I can't thank you enough for spending the time here with me today as a small part of your journey. As always, 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 I cannot thank each and every listener enough for joining me on this journey. I I hope that the discussions have sparked new ideas, Maybe they've inspired some action. Maybe they've illuminated the path ahead just a little bit for you. Remember that the shape of tomorrow is in our hands. It's created and crafted by the decisions we make and the actions we take today. Until we meet again next time, please stay curious, stay innovative, be well. And may you continue to lead with vision, enthusiasm, energy, and innovation. And just have a fantastic, fantastic Friday and a weekend of restoration and whatever it is that you need that weekend to be. And until we connect again next week, let me simply say, ciao.